Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of the podcast from Pete Down. Hope everybody's having another good week out there. The weather's turning a bit colder and windier here. We're supposed to get some rain this week, so that'll be kind of nice. We re- we need some uh, we need some rainy weather. Our reservoirs are at an all time low. I think I spoke about that a little bit on Saturday and or Sunday, I guess it was. That episode came out late. Speaking of which. I hope you guys all liked that episode on John Wayne. That was a lot of fun to kind of revisit some of the stuff that I had uh, heard about him in the past and whatnot and uh, talk about what a great actor he was. Looking at the news today, it's uh, kind of interesting. I just saw a deal on Facebook, which I don't know if you can really call that news, but I saw a deal there. They're, uh, they have Kamala Harris and... Ron Wyden talking back in 2018 about how the voting machines that they're using are so easily hackable and that the numbers that those things spit out aren't even reliable numbers for votes tallied. And then turn around back here we are in 2020 and they're saying that they're so reliable and that nobody can hack them or anything. Seems to be a politician you have to have a really short memory evidently. Um, I also saw that down in uh, Georgia, those officers that ended up shooting that guy that was trying to escape, they're not going to be charged. I read the report on that, and uh, he allegedly uh, tried to run the officers over with his car. One of them was trying to get in through the driver's side door and was flung up on the hood, and then the guy slammed on the brakes, it sounds like, and the officer was in front of him, and he barely got out of the way. Then the car hit another officer as the guy was speeding away, and they end up shooting and killing him. And I think it goes back to, you know, if you don't fight with the cops and try to kill them, they probably aren't going to try to kill you. Which leads me to the next thing, a sad deal. About a week ago in San Luis Obispo, an officer was shot and killed while serving a search warrant. And they had gone up to this guy's house to try to serve a search warrant on him. And he wouldn't answer the door, and he laid in wait in the house. And when they finally got through the door, he just opened fire on them. And one of them was shot and was died, I think, on the way to the hospital. And another one was shot and injured. And then the suspect went and committed suicide. So, I mean, at least it's the end of him. But maybe these cops should uh, start having LeBron James go with them to serve their search warrants because he seems to have all the answers on how to do their job. So... Maybe if he went out there and was serving the search warrants, things would turn out a little bit differently. What do you think? But other than that, things are going pretty well, I guess. About as good as can be expected. Uh, This week, we are going to talk about Dien Bien Phu. And this was a battle in the first Indochina War. And it was basically a battle between the French forces and some of the French allies and they were fighting against the Viet Minh, Viet Minh communist uh, forces that were in Vietnam at the time. And it was a mountainous region, and the French were trying, they were trying to cut off the supply lines that the Viet Minh forces were using to resupply their forces down there. And so, you know, they were trying to cut all that off. So the Indochina War, it wasn't going well for the French. They had, they'd had quite a few commanders who'd failed to stop the Viet Minh that... At the time, the Viet Minh people were fighting for independence, and it kind of goes to follow history with the American colonies fighting the British. You know, even if if you have people that are fighting for a cause, they can overcome overwhelming odds 
kind of, you know, they can take out a larger army, kind of like what we did when we were fighting for independence from the British. But in May 19 of 50, or 1953, the French premier, he sent in a guy by the name of Henri Navarre, and he was astonished by what he saw taking over the French forces down there. And a military scholar by the name of Philip Davidson wrote about it. He said, on arrival, Navarre was shocked by what he found. There had been no long-range plan since Delatre's departure. Everything was conducted on a day-to-day reactive basis. Combat operations were undertaken only in response to enemy moves or threats. There was no comprehensive plan to develop the organization and build up the equipment of the expeditionary force. Finally, Navarre, the intellectual, the cold and professional soldier, was shocked by the school's attitude of Salon and his senior commanders and staff officers. They were going home, not as victors or heroes, but then not as clear losers either. To them, the important thing was that they were getting out of Indochina with their reputations frayed but intact. They spared little thought or concern for the problems of their successors. And like I said, I I hadn't researched a whole lot of the backstory on this, but it just seems like France, they, you know, they didn't have a plan going into it. Um, You know, obviously, I think if you're conducting a war, you kind of need to be planned out a ways in advance, not just taking everything as it comes and fighting a defensive battle the whole way. At some point, you got to go on the offense and uh, do it that way. And it just doesn't seem like that's what they were doing. The Viet Minh forces, they were pushing their way across the uh, across the country, and the French were trying to stop them from getting into Laos, who was actually an ally of the French at the time. And the French created a plan that they called Hedgehog, and their plan was named different, but that's the name that it translated into English. I'm not going to try the French name. But they were going to airlift troops and drop them by Viet Minh supply lines, and they figured this would cut off their supply lines and force them to withdraw. And uh, along with this, they were going to create a fortified airhead like they did in the Battle of Nason a year or so earlier, which that actually worked out well for them there. But they were able to inflict a lot of damage on the enemy that was trying to attack this location. So obviously the enemy was trying to attack where their airbase was at, and it was so heavily fortified that they were able to put in a defensive force that would... uh, do a lot of damage to the enemy when they were trying to attack it. But they they failed to realize, though, the difference between that battle and this one, that here they didn't have have all the high ground uh, surrounded. The Viet Minh controlled a lot of the high ground around the valley. So they were in, it was kind of like a bowl, I guess, is what, where they had started to build this. And so the Viet Minh were able to gain control of a lot of of the high ground and uh, shoot down on them. And the Viet Minh also had stronger artillery than the French had expected them to have. They also outnumbered the French 4-1. to one. And also at Dien Bien Phu, the Viet Minh had anti-aircraft weapons that they would employ, or that they could employ. So um, they had a lot stronger military and weapons than they had in the previous battle. So anyhow, they'd been looking at this site for quite a while to develop this airhead and this base that they were wanting to put out or to build up. And one general, he was envisioning a lightly, a lightly protected air base here, but Navarre wanted a heavily fortified base that could withstand a siege. And all the subordinate officers, they protested him, but he outranked their numbers and didn't have as much brains, evidently. And he went along with uh, building this thing. 
So on November 20th of 1953, the French began to build up the area. They flew in approximately 9,000 troops over a three-day period, and they brought them in at three different drop points. And by the end of November, they had brought in six parachute battalions and had consolidated their positions. And at this time, a guy by the name of Vonien Yap, I guess, who was commanding the Viet Minh troops, began his countermaneuvers. And he had three regiments attack Bien Dinh Phu, and a fourth one attack at Lai Chao, which was another area that the French were trying to hold. So the French started transforming the anchoring point into a fortress by creating seven satellite locations. And so remember Lai Chao, <clears throat> that only had one regiment that was attacking? Well, it had to be given up, and the troops were trying to get to Dien Bien Phu, and 2,100 troops left, but only 180... 185 ended up making it there after on trying to retreat out of that other that Lei Chao place. The rest were ended up either being killed, captured, or deserted. So now they had around 16,000 men in a valley that was surrounded by heavily wooded hills that had not been secured. And as an interesting side note, they had 10 U.S. tanks here that had to be broken down into 180 pieces each and reassembled on site. Sounds like they ordered all of them from Ikea or something. So the Viet Minh had assembled roughly 50,000 troops into the hills surrounding the valley, and they had brought in some pretty heavy, heavy artillery. They'd gotten some 105 howitzers from the Chinese, and then various types of other he heavier artillery and anti-aircraft guns. And their big guns also outnumbered the French about 4 to 1. So the Viet Minh began firing on the French on January 31st of 1954, and the French also noted that Viet Minh troops were on patrol, and they soon realized that they were surrounded. So they knew, obviously, that they were getting fired upon, but I don't think they knew that they were totally surrounded by the Viet Minh forces until they actually started noticing these guys out on patrol. And uh, so then it was kind of uh, looking like pretty dire straits for the French. And so... Remember I talked about those seven satellite locations? Well, they were hoping that these things would be able to hold off the Viet Minh forces, um, but obviously they didn't. And I'm not going to go into each and every one of them, but basically the Viet Minh started attacking each one of the outposts, and they were taking them out one by one, or they would go, do simultaneous attacks on a couple of them, and they would bombard them with heavy artillery, and then they'd move in and take them over. So like I said, they I think I heard at one time that they had to get their forces into battle, they had actually dropped some of the artillery and stuff on the back side of this mountain and they had tunneled all the way through it so that the French forces wouldn't see them coming in with this heavy artillery. And like I said that the French hadn't secured that area, so they were basically able to just start firing at will onto down onto these uh little French bases that they had. So the French, they'd put up some good resistance in some of the areas, but they were way too outmanned and outgunned. The tanks that they had gotten from the U.S. were quickly destroyed by heavy artillery and RPGs, and they were also being outmaneuvered in the trench warfare that the Viet Minh was utilizing. And the Viet Minh, they'd had uh, previous um, training or whatever, trial by fire with trench warfare, and so they were outdoing the French in that area as well. Then finally, on May 7th, the Viet Minh had a heavy assault with over 25,000 troops, 
and there were only 3,000 troops defending by the French. And the final radio message came in that night stating, The enemy has overrun us. We're blowing up everything. Viva la France. And on May 8th, the Viet Minh counted 11,721 prisoners, of which 4,436 were wounded. And many of the able-bodied prisoners were marched on foot up to 500 miles away to prison camps. And a lot of them would end up dying on this journey. They weren't being treated very well. And a lot of them... I mean, they were, they say they were able-bodied, but a lot of them, it seems like they were just kind of like walking wounded, and they weren't going to survive that long of a trip on foot. And another <clears throat> interesting side note to kind of end this off, did you know that the French, they actually brought in bordellos to keep the French soldiers satisfied, I guess you could call it, while this battle was going on? They had... uh yeah, brought in uh, women of the night, I guess you could call it. And uh, I'm not sure if these were counted as some of the prisoners that were captured or not, but yeah, there was that. And that's pretty much all I have for uh, DMBM Fu. I could have made this a lot longer episode if I wanted to go into each one of the battles, but all of them, there wasn't a whole lot on them either. It was just kind of that... Like I'd said, the Viet Minh forces would bombard them pretty heavily, and then they'd just go in and assault them on ground, and then any of them that would try to escape, they just kind of kept corralling them back to a smaller area and a smaller area until they launched that final assault and basically overran them. And that's all I have on that one, pretty much. And really quickly, we're going to go over the next thing that's listed in the song, and that's Rock Around the Clock. And this is going to be really short, kind of like Dacron. Um, it was a song by Bill Haley and his comments, Comets, and it was released in 1954. And it was one of the first rock and roll songs of the 1950s. And it's actually still one of the top 10 best-selling singles today. And it actually became a hit all around the world. This was before a time of YouTube and the internet. So it was kind of a big deal that this, you know, everybody all over the place was really liking this song. And it's described as a main song that brought rock and roll into the mainstream culture. Um, rock and roll of this nature, I guess, hadn't been really mainstream up until this time. And this song kind of unleashed it. And in 1955, it held the number one spot on music charts for about two months. And really, that's pretty much all there is to it. So, um, like I said, that was going to be short and quick. But anyhow, I did notice on the um, Apple Podcast site that I've gotten a couple more um, ratings. So that was good. Everybody keep going out and rating that thing. Hopefully we can get this out to a wider audience. We did pick up a listener from Puerto Rico. And we've listed or picked up a couple of more states. And whoever that person is that's listening from India, unless that's some sort of fluke or something, you've been sticking with us from the beginning, I'd love to hear your thoughts or actually anybody on any of the different areas that I've covered. If I'm getting something completely wrong or if you have other information about it, I'd love to hear it. Um, I'm not going to call you out on the podcast or anything like that, but I'd love to just get the information um, and see what you've got to say about all of it. So you can go out and join the Facebook group at Podcast from P-Town, or you can follow me on Instagram at P-Town Podcast, or you can send me a good old-fashioned email, and we can chat back and forth there. 
at ptownpodcast74 at gmail.com. And that's it for this one. We'll see you guys on the next one.